0: To be selfless. Now, every one of us are born very very selfish. You know, you know, we come into this world and it's all, you know, we just we have our needs met, we're young and we're very immature, so it's very natural for it to be all about us, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but as we grow, we should be learning and especially especially when you and I come to know Christ, God begins a work in us. And Jesus, what did Jesus say? He said, "You will—they will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another." And so, that really love is simply being selfless instead of selfish. And so, again, the world—the world around us naturally uh, is self-centered. It is—it's a challenge that cannot be done apart from God's grace. So the the basic challenge of this text today is is be selfless. Be selfless. And so three things we're going to see. Number one, in verse one, the conditions to be selfless. You just can't be selfless on your own. There needs to be something uh, to enable you and I to think about others, to consider others, before we consider ourselves, remember what Paul said and Jesus said: "Love others as you love yourself. Love your wives, husbands are said uh, challenged. Love your wives as you love yourself." So it's it's a given that we already love ourselves, but it's a challenge for us to then, through Christ, love others. And if you don't meet the conditions, verse one is is condition. <coughs> excuse me, conditional statement after conditional statement after conditional statement. If, if, if. And so we're going to look at that and see, do you meet the conditions? Do you even have the ability to be selfless? And then verse 2, the comfort that comes from selflessness. And particularly Paul is talking about uh, if what the blessing he receives if they would be selfless instead of selfish. And obviously, you know, th- those rumblings I was talking about, uh, the Bible says, "Only by pride cometh contention." And so, when you and I are the more self-centered we are, the more quarrelling, the more problems we have with people. Selfish people just breed contention and strife, and we don't want to be like that. And then, thirdly, uh, verses three and four, the conduct of the selfless. Uh, it's kind of a um, kind of a test here that uh, that. Selfless people have a certain mindset. So we're going to look at all that. Let's just jump right in. Verse one: the conditions to be. Did I say? Did I pray yet? No, I did not. Thank you. I I am getting older. I really am, and and I'm concerned about it. My wife's concerned about it. Um, Where'd where'd all you people come from? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Let's let's pray together. Father, help us today. Help me especially uh, as as um, I have. Tried to honor you and really, really study this text. And it's been such a blessing to me. And I pray that you'd help it to be a blessing to this dear congregation. Uh, Help me to feed them, Father. Help us to understand uh, what you're saying. Not my opinion of uh, anything here, but what you're saying. And uh, Lord, help us to want to be selfless. Help us to want to be like Christ who gave himself for others. And again, we thank you, Lord. Just bless this time. May the Spirit of God be able to fully work with with limited, with no restraints. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen. So verse 1, the conditions. Now, in verse 1, you see this statement, if, if, if. And that's what's called a conditional statement. In the Greek, we've mentioned this before. There's, it's interesting because in the Greek... Based on the terms that's used, there's actually four different kinds of conditional statements, and when you and it trans, transfers over in English, you know sometimes when you say if, uh, you you really could substitute the word since, and sometimes when you use the word if, it really is a big if, and there's four different ways. We're not going to go into all that, but the way this is written in verse one, is one of those ones where he could say since. Because he's he's referring to people that are, they've made professions of faith, they're in Christ, they're born again believers, they're Christians and now he's talking to them in suffering. Remember, Philippians is all about suffering. He's in prison, they're suffering in Philippi because of the pressure upon them to conform and not follow Jesus Christ and so they're follow, they're experiencing persecution and suffering, and now Paul is challenging them. Uh, and he's, he's going to talk about this, but he's, asked, he's, he's using this uh, if, the conditional statements, to remind them, you know, I'm going to ask you to do something, he's saying, but you're not going to do it if you, if you don't meet these conditions. Now, he believed they already had met those conditions, And he's reminding us of what those conditions are so that we can be selfless. So look what he says in verse 1. If, or you could say since, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, is there any, do you get any encouragement in Christ? Is there, being in Christ, being a Christian, does that afford us any? Encouragement is the idea of consolation. Of course, the answer is yes. If any comfort of love. In other words, if if being Christ, if there's any comfort from his love. And of course, you, in each one of these little sentences, you could respond with, and there is. Yes, there is consolation in Christ or encouragement in Christ. Yes, there is comfort in uh, of comfort of love in His love, if any fellowship of the Spirit. In other words, if if being in the Spirit has any effect in us, if there's any particip- participation in the Spirit. That's the idea of any um, fellowship of the Spirit. If any bowels and mercies. In other words, if, if he's basically asking them um, if. Uh, they have any affection or compassion if their hearts are tender? Are you tender? Are you compassionate? And all these things go back to being in Christ. And he's writing to people who profess faith in Christ. They said, we are Christians. In fact, they were suffering for it. By the way, that's something we're missing here in America to the degree that that other countries even experience to this day. You identify with Jesus Christ in, in other places, And there's immediate serious persecution. Whereas here, it's relatively comfortable. Uh, And so it it becomes a little harder to discern who belongs to Christ and who doesn't. Because there's a lot of people that jump on the Christian bandwagon um, when they think it can offer them something, but they don't understand the stakes. These people understood the stakes. They were either going to rise or fall on their faith. And so he's asking them these conditional statements. Basically saying, hey, is there any encouragement? Do you get any encouragement from being in Christ? Do you find any any consolation uh, from his love? Any fellowship? Any, is there any participation going on with his spirit? Do you have any... Do you have a tender heart? Do you have compassion? Now, for believers, they would answer, they'd hear all this and they'd say, I do because of Christ. We love Him because He first loved us. We can love others. You remember, uh, they will know you are disciples by your love one for another. That's a big deal. And if they meet that requirement, which of course requires being in Jesus Christ, that's going to be part of your life. And, and he's just he's reminding them of that listen to some of these other verses in scripture where' uh, reading Paul's writings where he brings out this same thing that if you and I are going to be challenged to be not selfish but selfless we got to be we've got to be tapped into the source where we have the ability to do it listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter one and verse 5. He said, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. See, when you get saved, it affects you. It transforms you. Uh, it gives you a love for people that you might not love generically. You know? I mean, we all, we all drift towards certain kinds of people because we are all different kind of people. And so different kind of people, we tend to have certain types that we will be drawn towards. One of the amazing things in me uh, that I have demonstrated, or I've seen rather, is people that normally, maybe outside of the church and outside of Christ, they would definitely not get along. But when God saves them, He gives them an amazing love for one another. I've seen it over and over again. Where God gives people... Uh, the ability to love people that rub them the wrong way is the idea. You know, it's amazing. But that's only because of Christ, because what He's done for us. Listen to this one, Romans 5 and verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory. And then he goes and talks about the benefit of tribulation. Uh, not only so, we glory in tribulation, also knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience, patience experience. And it all goes back to when you and I are, can I say this, tapped into Christ, a well flows up. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. These things produced in our life, not because all of a sudden we've become so great. Hey, I turned over a new leaf, and man, my willpower has made me awesome. No, we're not saying that. But when God saves us, He begins a work inside of us that just begins to explode in in amazing ways. There's a kid's song. pretty sure it's a kid's song. uh, We've never sung this during our church service here. Uh, But probably all of you maybe, maybe, I don't know about other countries, but um, there's a song that goes like this. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands, right? If you're happy and you know it, then your face will surely show it. Some versions have, then your life will surely show it. If you're happy and you know it, stomp your feet. If you're happy and you know it, say hooray. Uh, And then if you're happy and you know it, do all three. And you you get the kids to do the claps and it's all fun. But I want you to think about it, you know. If you're happy and you know it. Now, who would, be, who would be happy and not know it? You know, I am so happy. I'm, I'm bubbling over. You know, when you're happy and you know it, then your life will surely show it. That's what, that's what Paul's saying here in this text. He's saying, hey, are you, are, is there all these things? Is there any consolation in Christ? Any comfort in His love? Any fellowship of the Spirit? Any bowels and bows mercies? If that's so, then here's the product of it. Then your life should surely show it. So I want to ask you something. Not Well, I'm going to ask you, are you happy and you know it? Are you in Christ and you're showing it? That's the idea. That's what Paul's talking about. I've discovered that um, the things that we, uh, that impact us we want to share with others. I've shared this in the past before but um, I, I got into a couple about two years ago, I started watching uh, these documentaries. Um, there's this new phenomenon that uh, apparently, a scoop, it, it, because of sonar, you know, those of you that like fishing, they have advanced so much on sonar, like when you go out on a boat, you put a sonar in, you can see where the fish are. Man, what a, those poor fish, they don't stand a chance. But there's this new thing where because it's gotten so good, um, they can spot cars underwater. And it, it's, it, one group that started initially is just, let's clean up some of these lakes because there's so many cars down there. And they just started pulling out cars just to, just to make the environment better. And all of a sudden, they started finding bodies, people that had died in submerged vehicles. And so now this thing's sweeping the nation and, and other nations where people are, you know, they, they're getting a the fishing sonar, those that do scuba diving, and they're diving on those cars and here's a statistic that has come out every year in North America from 350 to 400 people die in, in single car accidents through submerged vehicles they go off the road they they hit something whatever and they end up drowning in their car every year now this has been happening for decades and now all of a sudden all these all these different sonar groups are going out there looking and they're just finding people Some that had died like 20 and 30 years ago. And so one of the, uh, several of these groups, they're now pushing these things called uh, a breakout. Uh, It's called a break, um, it is called a escape mechanism. You ever seen one of them? It's a little thing where it has a a little thing where you can cut through the um, seatbelt. And then there's. On that same thing, you put it, because of tempered glass, like you ever try and break a car window? A lot of people, you know, when they get in a car, you push this little mechanism, it looks so, it looks impossible, but as soon as you push it, it shatters the glass. And, and it saves people's lives. And because I've watched these documentaries, I went out and I bought all, everyone in my family, I bought one of those things, you know. And they're like, and I made them. Put it on your rear view mirror, please do this for me. All right, Dad, you know, like, when are we going to need this? Well, hopefully never. And then there's another thing I've talked about, which is another wonder, is the you know how you have the rearview mirrors on the car? When I first bought one of my father-in-law's cars, he had these little round disc co- convex mirrors on each, and they were, like, so happy. It was, like, it was irritating because I'm driving that car, I want to look in the rearview mirror, and there's this little disc that distorts everything, and I'm like, this is stupid and then I realized that it's, you know the blind spot? All of a sudden I began to realize, wait a minute, this is so valuable. I cannot tell you how many times I've looked in the rearview mirror and there's, you know, I didn't see anything in my peripheral vision, I didn't see anything, and then I look in that little convex mirror and there's a car right next to me. Well, studies have shown, this was put out by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, that 840,000 blind spot accidents occur each year in the United States, resulting in 300 deaths. Have you ever started to pull over in another lane and all of a sudden the car beeped because you didn't see them? So now I've got this idea that, you know, one of the greatest gifts to show someone I love them is to get them a little escape mechanism and and convex mirrors. So if you ever get a package from me with those two things, after you write me off like, whoo, he's losing it, realize that I did it because I love you. And I think you all ought to go out and get some. You know, really, it's amazing. I, it may save your life. But again, why did I go out and buy them for all my kids and, and people in my family? Because I love them. And, and I, know that, I know that most of them are like, Dad, what are the chances that I'm going to drive over into a lake? And I, Okay, I know it's low. But what about the 350 to 400 people every year where it happens to them? And and again, it's just, it's affected me. And, And of course, when something happens to you that is so valuable that you love other people and you want to help them, you share it with them. That's what the gospel is all about. Jesus Christ came to die for our sins. And there's so multitudes of people are lost and they don't know it. They don't know that they don't have Christ. They may be religious. And religion can be one of the most dangerous things when you think it's all about trying to earn your way and be good and go to church. And realize that Christianity, folks, is Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Now look at verse 2. So that was the, the conditions to be selfless. And I hope you meet those conditions. I hope you have all those things. The consolation in Christ. The comfort of His love. Fellowship in the Spirit. These are all things you are tapped into the source. And if you're not, then being selfless will be very different and, and it'll be strange to you. Look at verse 2. Now, if if you meet all these conditions, then do this. Fulfill ye my joy. Paul's saying, make me happy. Make me happy. Fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded In other words, have the same mindset, have the same love, be of one accord, be of one mind. It's an amazing thing. Now, here's Paul. He got saved. He was very religious as a Pharisee, very zealous for the law. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. uh, In fact, we're going to get to this in Philippians where he starts bragging about all the things that were so important to him and, and you know he was he was a Hebrew the Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin circumcised I mean he just goes on and lists the whole all his credentials as a religious person. In fact there's a lot of people that do that today. And then he counted all that loss for Jesus Christ. He got saved. He came to realize it's not up to me it's not about me doing stuff to please God because I could never do it. It's him sending his son to die for me. And now Paul has this incredible love for people. And now he's invested himself. He went to Philippi. Went to different places. Preached the gospel. People get saved. And now he cares about them. And now he wants for them what Christ has done for him. And as he writes to this church that's undergoing persecution. And there's again this this tension that's building up. Because of carnality. He would write... Uh, way more to the Corinthians, because they had so much carnality. So, and, and with carnality, with selfishness, comes strife. Only by pride cometh contention. When you get self-centered, in fact, you—you you, I've observed this. People that are saved, genuinely born again, that give demonstrate fruit, they might come to a rough patch in their life, where they kind of get away from the Lord. And they may not even see it. But because they're getting away from the Lord, they begin to start acting very selfishly. And and so many times, praise God, when they snap out of it or they get right with God, and then they go back and they're like, oh man, and they apologize to people and all that. So it's because of that. Only by pride cometh contention. If you're a believer, you're tapped into Christ. So I want to challenge you, because to your leaders, and I can tell you this: if you are, if I am your pastor, uh, nothing grieves spiritual leaders more than when two believers are at odds with one another through carnal ways. Uh, it, 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 it's nothing brings stress on pastors and, and elders and, and leaders in the church. Nothing brings stress more than when. There is strife, strife between church members. That's, in fact, Paul wrote this. He wrote in First Thessalonians chapter 5, he was writing to them about their relationship with their spiritual leaders, their pastors. And he said, We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. That would be their pastors. He said, And esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And then right after that he says, And be at peace among yourselves. Why would he say that? Because it's a big deal. It is a big deal. We live in a world that is increasingly becoming more and more selfish. Um, you know, the, the Bible likens, and we talked about this on Wednesday, the Bible likens the Christian life to uh, military conflict, war. Uh, we looked at some of the verses, no man that woreth. Entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. Paul said to Timothy, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Folks, we are in war, spiritual war. And there are so many analogies from physical war. And Paul uses them. Uh, 2 Corinthians, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. In other words, we're not using physical weapons. But they are mighty to God. And there's so many uh, instances. So, uh, recently I I read the testimony of a a former army ranger who served in Afghanistan around 2005 and, you know, through the whole war on terrorism. Uh, His name is Tony Brooks. He wrote a book called... um, Leave no man behind. And I got to one section in the book where he was talking about, and I don't believe this man is a born-again Christian, so he's not writing from a Christian perspective, but he was writing about his experience as a soldier in military conflict and how uh, that affected him, what his perspective was when he came back to the States, uh, what it was like serving. And I just... uh, Parallels oozed out of the book to the spiritual life. So I want to read some things to you from this book that I, I believe have incredible application because spiritual warfare is warfare. And so what this man, Tony Brooks, experienced is stuff that happens in the spiritual realm. And I just have a couple paragraphs I want to read. I'll make some comments. But he's talking about... he. um Talking about 2005, one of the the things that he had to do, uh, you know, just really, I won't go into it, but it, he he serious stuff, and he commented this about all his rangers, and remember, the army rangers are like navy seals, and you know, these are the elite forces. Here's what he said. He said, "Let's be honest here. None of us wanted to be in the mountains of Af- of Afghanistan right then, while we put on a facade of loving war and fighting." What we really loved was the thrill of battle, the thrill of coming out on the other side with our buddies. Yes, we were here to fight for our nation, our way of life, our security. This was all based on the attacks of September 11th. And I'll never forget when President Bush stood on top of that rubble with his, the, that uh, mic- megaphone and he said, We will not forget. I was so proud of being American and him and uh, we have forgotten Here's what, he, here's what he says. He said, again, most of all, we were looking out for well-being of the guys to our right and our left. He said, Auth- author Stephen Ambrose said it was the same way after the landings at Normandy, Normandy in excuse me, World War II. What allowed the Allied troops to prevail against the odds was more than the cause of freedom, more than the individual resolve, more than even patriotism, It was men who cared about each other so much that they were willing to fight to the death to save each other. Now, that's military conflict. When you enter into the battle, it it puts you in a whole different mode and you are in conflict mode. You know there's an enemy. And folks, that's true for us. I remember an illustration one time where uh, the author talked about two cruise ships. And and then one of the cruise ships, might have been the Queen Mary, uh, an older one, was refitted because it was a time of war and it became a troop ship. And then the guy listed all the differences between a cruise ship and what it was and what it is now. And, you know, it was a difference in night and day because of the purpose. You know, the church is not a cruise ship. A lot of people think it is. It's it's a troop ship. It's it's a battleship. And too many Christians have a cruise liner mentality and they just don't understand. Uh, Tony Tony Brooks goes on about when he came back from war and went back into society. He said, I went back to school this time at the University of South Carolina and uh, what concerned my fellow students was so different from what concerned me. I was seriously pursuing a career. They were seriously pursuing the next party. Even though I was only five years older than some of these classmates, it felt more like I was 15 or 20 years older. Honestly, I had more in common with my professors than my fellow students. He said, I did have to laugh at times. How little they understood about the wider world and what a warped view they had about what constitutes a problem. My problem was trying to sleep without thinking about 16 soldiers whose bodies I had to squeeze into body bags, always wondering if their families ever recovered when they got that call or that visit with the news. Their idea of a problem was a slow barista at Starbucks. We had virtually nothing in common. It was as if we spoke different languages and lived on different planets. Some of that should be true with us. Because we have a different mentality. And when a Christian, so to speak, is more concerned about slow service at a particular store, maybe they've lost sight of the spiritual battle that is going on. He goes on, he said, A few soldiers come home. Few soldiers come home from war completely unscathed. I wonder if part of the problem isn't the experience of war, but the experience of returning to a country in the throes of disunity and polarization. War bonds soldiers together in a way that should be the norm in our culture, but no longer is. It is it's as if we were meant for connection, and the military solidifies such connection. But once home, we live in a world that's increasingly disconnected. So soldiers that are coming back from war are seeing something totally different here in America. He said, in Afghanistan, there was resistance, an enemy, a force that our unit was charged with battling. It was an experience that drew me close to the men around me. Unit, of course, is the root word for unity. That's what we had. We were one. It's a cliche, yes, but we were all for one and one for all. Then we return to a culture marked by individualized lifestyles where even if it's not entirely true, seems to be all for me and me for myself. Or condensed, every man for himself, every woman for her, herself. Back home, I'd be on a commute to school or work and some guy would cut me off and act as if I was the problem. I routinely met people who seemed so ungrateful for all that they had, freedom foremost among them. Naturally, it was difficult for me to assimilate back, not necessarily because what I'd seen or been through over there, but the spirit of this disunity I found back here. Those are interesting comments. Here's a guy that experienced warfare. And because of that, because they lived in danger, Depending on one another, became critical. Maybe things that were petty issues before faded away. And yet, today, folks in America, the church, too many of God's people, petty things. Things that are really, when you step back and look at, we are in a spiritual battle for souls. And, and how can we trifle? We strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, to quote Jesus. Last paragraph. He said, here's what fractures us deeper. There's a sliver of people willing to lay down their lives for others in the village. Police officers, firefighters, EMTs, doctors, nurses, and the military foremost among them. But there's a far larger portion of the population that wouldn't consider for even a nanosecond lifting a finger for police officers, firefighters, the military, and others. The world will always be populated with givers and takers. This is his observation. Take note of this. But the imbalance in the U.S. is tilting farther towards the takers. The military, when you consider it at its essence, is all about giving, about sacrificing to maintain our country's freedom by standing up to the bully so he won't ram planes into our skyscrapers ever again. It certainly didn't happen overnight. But when I was honorably discharged from the military in 2007, I noticed a deepening sense of I'm righteous and you're not thinking that pervades ages, political parties, regions, you name it. Meanwhile, the sense of acting for the common good seems to be outdated as the 8-track tape. Now, you know, there's application to that. If you take the military conflict and you put it in spiritual warfare terms... You and I are called to be soldiers as good soldiers endure hardness. And if you and I don't have that mentality, then we're going to be pampered Christians that tribble over petty things, as we talked about on Wednesday, either last Wednesday or the week before that, uh, how too many people trifle over things that are insignificant when you put uh, eternity in view. Last point, verses 3 and 4, the conduct of the selfless. So first we have the conditions to be selfless if there be any consolation in Christ. If all these things are met, the criteria is met in your life, then, Paul says, be a blessing to me, make me happy, by, look at verse uh, 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. The word for strife is a Greek word which speaks of factiousness. The idea is, it goes back really to that idea that only by pride comes contention, Proverbs 13.10. It's the idea of you know, people that have selfish ambition, they're, they're clawing their way, they're, they're, they don't care who they hurt or step over to get what they want, is the idea of that strife. And he says, let nothing be done through strife or factiousness or vainglory, in other words, conceit. But here's the challenge now. this is selflessness. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now next week, or next, in the next verse, I believe, the next few verses, he's going to tell us he's going to give us the best example. He's, he's say, "Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. He's going to give us exhibit A, B through Z. Of, of the, the most selfless person that ever lived. It says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. That is the ultimate. In other words, it's not, sh- it's not putting on a show. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sacrifice myself for you because I'm such a great guy. Or because I'm so humble. Or because I'm so religious. No. What we do, it's, it's a thinking. Again, let, not, um, let in loneliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. If you look at other people and say, they're more valuable than me, it's going to affect the way you act. And then he goes in verse 4, look not every man on his own things. In other words, stop just merely looking at your own personal interests, but every man also on the things of others. Do you do that? Some people, it seems, even professing Christians, seem consumed with the things that interest them. And they don't have the ability to, to consider others. How important it is that we have the ability to, to, to really look at other people and say, you know what, i got to put them before me. I've got I to esteem them higher than myself. How do you do that? Well, go back to verse 1. Is there any consolation in Christ? Are you benefiting from walking with the Lord? Do Do you have His Spirit to empower you? Are you being encouraged in the Lord? Because if you're not, you're going to come to the conclusion that so many people outside of Christ have come to. It's not worth it. Why should I give myself to that person? There's nothing in it for me. Or, you know, I've tried to show love to other people, and it just it's not worth it. Because people stab you in the back. People will just, you know, you show them nothing but love, you genuinely care for them, and they'll just as easily walk away from you or, or insult you. And it's very easy, folks, apart from the supply of Christ, to get cynical. Remember, remember the word cynical? It's the same, word, same root word in the origins from the word canine. Literally, the, one of the definitions is, is you're like a snarling dog. And if we're not careful, folks, remember those? If we get away from the Lord, every Christian who gets further and further away from Christ has the ability to be the most self-centered, selfish person in the world. And that's why so many professing Christians end up so bitter. Because they've left the source of the encouragement, the comfort, the consolation, the fellowship of the Spirit, all those things that are available. When we get outside of Christ, we we like cut off the ties. Then you and I can be no different than the world. And we've come like snarling dogs. And I've met people that are like snarling dogs. (laughs) If a wise man contendeth with a foolish man, whether he rage or laugh, there is no rest. That's what I think of. In other words, you tried to, You ever tried to talk to someone that was foolish and angry and all bound up, and you tried to, you know, okay, I'll try to. Whether you rage or left, there's there's just no rest. And there's some people. it Doesn't matter how you steer the conversation. Rah, they're just snarling dogs. Don't be a snarling dog. Don't, because it's 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 so unbecoming of the gospel. I close. With it. Everybody's heard of, um, of uh, Isaac Newton, right? And when you think of Isaac Newton, what is the one piece of fruit that you think of with him? Apple. I can't believe more people didn't say it. Isaac Newton is that guy in history, lived in the 1600s, who apparently, the story goes, and he was sitting under a tree, and an apple fell on his head. Ouch. Well, most people would just curse the apple. And moved from out of the apple tree, but you know Isaac Newton was this brilliant mind of a scientist, and from that experience, you know he um, discovered and introduced the laws of gravity, which revolutionized astronomical studies, and and really the man was brilliant, and he he was genius mathematically, and he ended up writing a book uh, called. Um, mathematical pr- Principles of Nature, of Natural Philosophy. It was often, because it was a, back in a time when Latin was the main language, most people just called it Principia, Principle. But again, it was Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy. But he almost didn't write it. These br- his brilliant mind, which was working all these things out, he had some loose ends and all. But do you know that if it wasn't for a man by the name of Edmund Halley, we probably wouldn't know the name Isaac Newton. Because Edmund Halley was a contemporary, and he is the one that encouraged Isaac Newton to write the book. He encur- in fact, he actually helped him to correct some mathematical things that he hadn't gotten right. And then he also funded the, this book. Even though Isaac Newton was richer and able to fund it more, Uh, He had so much influence, Edmund uh, Haley did. And as soon as the book published, Isaac Newton, you know, almost immediately he became famous overnight. And uh, Edmund Haley just kind of sat in the background. Now he would eventually use some of his scientific stuff to discover a comet which was named after him, Haley's Comet. Um, So, you know, he's famous in some ways but it only comes um, seventy-six times, or, seven, or once every 76 years, something like that, 70-something. So, you know, we don't think of, of Halley's Comet too much, and yet he was satisfied, and he was not at all envious of the, the success that Isaac Newton had, and yet he played a big part in that. Somebody once said, there's no telling what can be done for the cause of Christ if it didn't matter who got the credit. Uh, There's a great pastor from Britain named F.B. Mayer, M E Y E R. And when he was an older pastor, he had pastored for for years. Along in London came this young upstart preacher that grabbed the attention of everybody. His name was Charles Spurgeon. Everybody wanted to hear Charles Spurgeon. And so F.B. Mayer, you know, Mayer, he's going to church, and all of a sudden, everybody in his church, all they're talking about is Charles Spurgeon. And he got a little jealous. And he started praying, Lord, help me. Help me not to be jealous. Help me not be envious or resentful. And, uh, and he, he, had to, he had to wrestle with that. And eventually God gave him some sweet victory so that he was able to truly enjoy and pray for. I mean, people were leaving his church and going to Metropolitan Tabernacle so they could hear Spurgeon. And and the reports were coming in. of He would preach to thousands, tens of thousands. And thousands of people would come to Christ. And here's F.B. Mayer living under the shadows of that. And yet he was able to fully rejoice and pray for the success of Charles Spurgeon. I remember, I close with this, I remember years ago going to a pastor's conference. We were just starting a church out here. And uh, this pastor's luncheon, I think it was, There was another guy about my age who was also starting a church. And please forgive me for what I'm about to say, because this was my mentality growing up in high school. I love lifting weights and stuff. And I was, you know, arrogant. And I remember some of that still was there. And I remember looking at him and thinking, man, he is such a geek. You know, he's such a geek. He's like, you know, pencil thin, and you know, probably had a protractor. You know, the typical stereotypes. And I remember just looking at him. I'd never said anything about it, but I just remember thinking, "You're gonna start a church, huh? I wonder how that's gonna go." He's still pastor in that same church, and it's huge, and it's so. It's got ministry coming out of ministry coming out of ministry, and I've been eating humble pie ever since. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's God has a way of doing that. He's probably looking at me. Maybe he looked at me that day and say, "What a loser!" You know, probably not. He he probably had a humble attitude, and that's why God blessed him. But here's the challenge, folks: be selfless. If you don't have the ability, you find that it's beyond you. Make sure that you are in Christ. So that verse 1, all those things can be true. And then, let's start looking at other people better than ourselves. We're going to find out again. We're going to see Jesus Christ was the greatest example of that. He's the only one that's going to make that possible. But again, Jesus said, They will know that you are my disciples, one thing, by your love, one for another. Let's fulfill that. Please pray with me.